Good to see y'all. Oh, man, I don't know who told you those stories. Uh, I don't know. Only I guess we'll know in heaven if any of them are true. Uh, but, you know, as I was preparing uh, this week for this trip, you know, I was reflecting on my time here at New Life, and I realized that for about half of my life, you know, has been influenced and affected by New Life. You know, that, um, I mean, that has a profound effect on a person, right? I was 19, freshman in college, lost on Ring Road, looking for a church, a campus ministry. I see a sign, New Life Mission Church, right? Um, by the providence of God, I, I call them. And, you know, that, that's how we did it back then here for campus ministry. We just put signs up. And if you reached out to us, then we knew you were elect, right? <laughs> At that time, Horatio was the college director. He and Kim had no kids, they were newlyweds. We would just call, play Call of Duty and talk about justification. That was our discipleship ministry back then. And I remember doing my intern duty and picking Pastor, up, uh, Pastor Will up from the airport as he was coming um, uh, to candidate for New Life. And I asked if he played basketball. And he said, yeah, my friends call me the Matrix. I was like, oh, snap, Sean Marion? Somehow we got him to agree to speak at our youth retreat the first year that he was here. I was like, this is, this is the chance, right? I think you and I shared a bed in the same room. And Fred and Martin slept on the ground. But Will and Kathy were the first ones at New Life that I introduced my wife to uh, that I was dating at the time. We went on a double date at Disneyland. Will did our premarital counseling and our wedding. I just try to monopolize as much of his time as possible. That's one of my goals in life. But, you know, the, the majority of my life has been colored by God's providence, working through my partnership with so many of you and through the ministry of this church. Y'all have a special place in my heart. I wouldn't go to speak at many churches a week before Palm Sunday. Let me just put it that way. So many good memories, so many good people I got nothing but love for you. Now, to change gears a little bit, I've got to preach a sermon. That's why you guys called me here. We're going through the book of Jonah, and I've learned so much as I was preparing for this uh, text. Uh, I'm, re- I'm going to go through Jonah 1 today, so if you have your Bibles with you, um, would you open it up to Jonah 1, and would you also stand with me for the reading of God's word? Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. 
What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? Of what people are you? And Jonah said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is it this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Jonah said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to follow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Now, just one more joke before I start, okay? Um, in my preaching class, I would always refuse to give three points for a sermon. Uh, and the professor of that class um, was the president, uh, Dr. Bob Godfrey, would always ding me on it. And one day during sermon feedback, I think he had enough of me, and he said, Rich, where are your three points? And I responded, Dr. Godfrey, you know, I feel like giving three points makes it sound like a lecture. And a sermon should take you on a journey. It should move you. You should be caught up in it rather than it being so rigid. And he looks at me and he goes, yeah, if you're a Pentecostal. <laughs> now, I hope no one gets offended, okay? It's a joke. It's a joke. Um, in his book that he signed for me, he wrote, To Richard, My Favorite Pentecostal. That's my claim to fame. But in light of that, let me give you the outline for today's sermon. First, we're going to take a look at uh, running from God. Then we're going to take a look at running into the storm. And then lastly, grace in the storm. But first, running from God. Uh, the passage begins with, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. We just read this. And, and God told him, go to Nineveh, that great city, and, and call out against it, right? Um, and, and, and this is not just a brimstone and fire sermon. Uh, Jonah knows that God's desire is to have them turn to him, to know him, and to be saved. But what does Jonah do? Jonah runs away from the presence of the Lord, and he gets on a ship, and he's trying to get as far away from God as possible. Now, in these three verses, there is a treasure chest of context. First, God is calling Jonah, who is an Israelite, to preach the gospel to Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And uh, the historical setting of Israel and Assyria was that Israel or Assyria was one of the cruelest and most violent empires of ancient times. One archaeologist writes, Assyria is as gory and blood-curling a history as we know. Assyrian kings often recorded the results of their military victories, boasting of entire valleys covered with corpses and of cities burned completely to the ground. Those who survived endured cruel and violent forms of slavery. And so around 820 BC, Assyria is 
uh, imposing its force on the northern kingdom of Israel by exacting heavy taxes. Israel's too small. They can't do anything. So they have to uh, succumb to this kind of pressure. And then finally in 722 BC, Assyria, Assyria finally invades. They conquer and they destroy the northern kingdom of Israel. And so the story of Jonah, right, God is calling him to love his enemies. And if you think about it, the story of Jonah is a microcosm of the history of the world. Wars and injustice, struggle for power and control. We see it in the news all the time. Countries and people at constant battle with one another. Yet it was to this people that was the object of God's missionary reach. Shocking. Almost blasphemous to ask any Israelite to do. So at the very least, there is no love lost between Assyria and Jonah. At the very most, Jonah's expectations of success was none. God, you're sending me on a suicide mission. The chances of death were high. So let's put ourselves in, in Jonah's shoe. You know, because, you know, none of us want to see ourselves as Jonah. We're like, oh, I'm like Isaiah, you know, that's not bad. I'm the weeping prophet. I'm like Jeremiah. But let, let's put ourselves in Jonah's shoes. If God came to you and he asked you to share the gospel to an enemy, any regular old enemy, maybe the neighbor across the street that parks always on your side of the road, maybe it's the neighbor who doesn't pick up after their dog, you know, every time, the dog goes number two on your lawn. Any old regular enemy. And God said, I want you to share the gospel to that person. I want you to invite him or her to church. How would you respond? It's heavy. But that is what is placed before us today. And in no way, of course, am I negating justice. The law is an instrument of God, and the God of the Bible is a God of justice. Justice must be pursued. Evil must be restrained. In Exodus chapter 22, God says of the cries of the afflicted, if you mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And so then the question is, how do we as Christians look at biblical justice in a holistic way in light of the Old and New Testament. In other words, what unique and exclusive perspective does the Bible bring to the Christian life as we encounter sin, as we live at peace with those who offend us, as we see evil? Because in our text today, and, and, and also in the Gospels, in the words and life and death of Christ, friends, there is this paradoxical reality of God's grace. And this is the conundrum that throws everyone off, and it even throws Christians off. It just it doesn't make things so black and white. It makes things messy. And this is why the Romans and the Hebrews both crucified Jesus, because Jesus didn't pick a side. He was constantly challenging both of them to be a Jonah to one another to understand alongside their sense of justice, there is this paradoxical reality of God's grace. And this is a 
difficult task for everyone, including the one speaking. So hard to love our enemies. I stopped telling people that I play basketball with that I'm a pastor because they'd always call me out on it. <laughs> hey, man, you're a pastor, dude. That was dirty. I was like, you know what? I'm not a pastor no more. <laughs> Loving your enemies is impossible without the Holy Spirit. Last thing on my mind is to share the gospel to someone who gives me the bird on the freeway, someone who utters a slur at me. I want to get away from that person as quick as possible. Love and grace is not the natural instinct, right, for men and women. You know what? I think that's why it's easier for us to go on short-term mission trips, you know, rather than to evangelize to those near us, right? People in our country, people in our neighborhood, school, and workplace, they're too close, right? There's too much personal baggage and animosity, messiness, and so we like the short-term aspect of short-term missions. A missional life, that's a long time. (laughs) That's a long time. That's a lot of work. But friends, God, you know, even as I was preparing for this, sermon, God is challenging me constantly. God is continually testing our love for him and his mission. How so? By testing our love for his enemies. Actually, Pastor Tim Keller, immediately after the 9-11 tragedy in New York City, do you know what book he preached through? The book of Jonah. So as a pastor as a church planner, and for you as a Christian, I want to hear what God is saying to us in this book. Because I know that there's truth here. It's the hope of the world. I I know that as difficult as it is, that's where flourishing is. But a lot of the times, like Jonah, friends, you and I, we, we run away from God's will, right? So that's the first thing we see in our text. Let's go to the second thing we see. Running into the storm. Now, Jonah is running away from God, and so he gets on a ship. He's trying to get away, uh, away from this, this calling that God has for him. And what ends up happening, the Lord sends, right, a storm upon the sea. And it's so massive that the ship is on the verge of sinking. What is God doing here? What's happening? Well, here's, here's what's happening here, right? The, the essence of all of this, underneath all of this, this text, this passage, and this narrative, it's sin. It's an offense, right? Jonah feels offended by the Assyrians. Now Jonah is disobeying against God. You see, underneath this storm is sin. You know, when Jen and I got married, one of the things we did was join bank accounts, um, you know, being a pastor and her having a full-time job. Oh, this is biblical. It's from God. One body, one account. Before becoming a pastor, I was an engineer, and so, you know, I'm a little bit better with numbers, a little bit better. You all know I I left that job, so I'm not good with it anymore. But Jen is a designer, and, you know, numbers isn't her strength nor her uh, interest. So when we got married and we combined our bank accounts, we had what I like to call different economic philosophies. It's just a Fancy phrase for saying we fought about money. So one time, I approached her about some of her spending. (laughs) Oh, man. She didn't like it. 
Right? She pushed back. She defended herself and pointed out all the things I purchased, you know? Oh, man, she's like, what about those basketball shoes? Why do you need indoor and outdoor shoes? That doesn't make any sense. At the end of the heated discussion, she walked away, and, and she loves this when I say this, but uh, she's not here, but I got her permission. But she walked away, and she said, this is injustice. You are unjust. That's what she said, verbatim. You know, whether it's marriage, friendships, work, anything in life, behind our strong emotions, behind our strong convictions, lies this sense of justice. When we feel attacked or offended, the first thought that comes to our mind is what? Retribution. We reach for the sword. Eye for an eye. It's retribution time. Maybe it's fight. Maybe like Jonah, it's flight. But when it ends up happening, we run into a storm. A recent article came out uh, by John Hopkins Medicine. It's titled, Forgiveness, Your Health Depends on It. I love it. Uh, as a society, we can't really convince each other uh, spiritually to forgive, so we say, okay, look, look, okay, it's good for you if you want to continue to live, right? And it reads this. Studies have found that the act of forgiveness can reap huge rewards for your health, lowering the risk of heart attack, improving cholesterol levels in sleep, reducing pain, blood pressure, levels of anxiety, depression, and stress, relational bleeding. Research points to an increase in the forgiveness and health connection as you age. You see, even a secular, a spiritual institution recognizes the storm that happens with unforgiveness and anger and resentment. And the Bible talks about how every time we turn from God, every time we go against his will, and today's text gives us the most impressionable image, doesn't it? Every time we run away from God, we run into a spiritual and emotional and situational storm. Maybe um, the pain and resentment from your uh, upbringing, it kind of bleeds over into our current family. We haven't forgiven maybe someone in the past in our family, so now forgiveness is just not a part of our life. So we're living in a storm of trauma and bitterness and cynicism. Maybe we just decided that we are not going to show any grace at work. We're just going to get stuff done. But that bleeds over with no grace for our friends, no grace for strangers, no grace for neighbors. And the pain and anger we experienced from just living, living in the world, living in this broken world, if not dealt with properly, it will bleed into our faith, bleed into our Christian identity, it will bleed into our church with unforgiveness and resentment. Desmond Tutu, some of you might know, was a South African Anglican bishop. Uh, he, was, he chaired the Truth and Reconciliation Committee to investigate human rights abuses committed during apartheid in South Africa. And he wrote this. There are different kinds of justice. Retributive justice is largely Western. 
the African understanding is far more restorative. Not so much to punish as to repair or restore people and communities. There is no peace without justice, but there is also no future without forgiveness. It is not either or, but both and. We seek a restorative justice, not a retributive justice. What Desmond is saying is retribution has its limits. Something else is needed desperately to settle the storm of sin in our lives and in the world. This brings us to the last point, grace in the storm. Now, when this storm appears, uh, the sailors, they're trying everything they can to survive, right? They're throwing cargo off the ship to lighten it so they don't drown. Other people are praying. Sounds like real life, one of my youth retreats. One of them says, let us cast lots, which was the ancient way of determining responsibility. Now, most likely, casting lots meant that each man's name was put on a stick, and then the one that was chosen had Jonah's name written on it. But first, it's easy to think that these are just naive ancients who didn't have access to meteor technology, which shows that storms are created when different air temperatures collide, creating strong pressurized winds against the waves. But I don't think we're all too different from these sailors. Let me explain. When something bad happens in your life, in my life, we get profoundly spiritual, don't we? We start going to morning prayer. We'll go to church. We'll ask people to pray for us. We're at community groups every single time. Peter Craigie, in his commentary on Jonah, he writes this, it is only when you reach the very bottom, when everything falls apart, when all your schemes and your plans and efforts and spirit are broken and exhausted that you are finally open to learning how to completely depend on God. Read this Atlantic article the other day of a, a new father as I'm preparing for fatherhood, and he said, you know, he's an atheist and he's, a, he's an agnostic, or he's an atheist. He said he, he became an agnostic when his first child came into his life at about 4 a.m. when the child was crying and he couldn't get any sleep. Second, this seems random, the casting of lots. Seems illogical, like voodoo, right? But it wasn't a complete random and illogical process. Let me explain. The person to whom the lot fell upon, they didn't just like all of a sudden like take them and, you know, that wasn't the verdict. It was just the beginning process of a judicial process. That's what it was. It just kind of kicked things off. It gave that person an opportunity now to defend themselves. And then it gave other people opportunity to defend uh, uh, that person or to step up and then take blame and responsibility because they felt tremendous empathy for the person who was innocent. And this is exactly what happens in our text, right? They go to Jonah. They say, hey, man, you know, the lot just fell on you. We're just coming to you. What did you do? Did you do something? Share with us. And Jonah, being a prophet of God, he has the privilege of a direct line from God, and, and he knows why, the God, why God has sent the storm, why God is angry with him. So he tells them, just, just pick me up and throw me to the sea. Then the sea will be quiet. Right? Uh, Tim Keller says on this verse, uh, in verse 12, is Jonah repenting 
and simply saying something like, I deserve death for my sin against God? Or are his motives the very opposite? Is he saying something like, I would rather die than obey God and go to Nineveh? Is he submitting to God or rebelling against God? The answer is likely somewhere in the middle. There is no reason to think that Jonah's motives and intentions would be any more orderly and coherent than ours would be in such a moment of peril and crisis. He does not use the language of repentance, nor would it make sense to think that he could turn from rebellion towards submission to God so quickly. So here's what I think is happening, right? These are not Hebrew sailors. They worship different gods, and they are enemies of Israel. But Jonah is now proximate to the people he was so set on hating. And now he realizes that he doesn't have a reason to hate them. Now they have a reason to hate him because they're going to die because of him. And so what's happening is Jonah is no longer identifying himself over and against his enemies, but he sees them in a new light. The moral tables have now been turned. They're innocent, and Jonah isn't. The storm is, is sort of waking Jonah up to his sin. It's all coming to a head, which is threefold. His sin of his hatred of Assyrians, his sin of his disobedience towards God, and, this, and the fallout of his sin unto others. And this happens all the time. It happens to me all the time. I'm sure it happens to you. You know, when you have ill feelings towards someone, what happens when they treat you kindly? Softens you up, doesn't it? It wakes us up to maybe some of the wrong assumptions or some of the wrongness of our anger. It sort of takes the edge off and humanizes them. We start to develop empathy and compassion for them. And that is what is happening shockingly to Jonah. He's starting to develop empathy and compassion to his enemies. And I love this part. The sailors are unwilling to throw Jonah overboard. They're good men. And they put a high value on human life. So they try to row to dry land at their own peril, but they cannot. You see, Jonah wasn't willing to do anything to save their lives. But these sailors are trying to do everything to save Jonah's. At the end, the sailors have no choice. They have to try something. So they give Jonah up. And then this, this prayer that they say is the only thing resembling of any kind of humility or compassion or repentance in our passage. They say, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. And so they picked Jonah up and hurled him into the sea. The sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. And then the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, uh, many of us modern folk uh, we dismiss the Bible because of texts like this. Jonah being saved uh, from a storm by being swallowed by a great fish, that's ridiculous. But how you respond to this passage will depend on how you read the rest of the Bible. And what I mean by that is this. 
if you accept the existence of God, you accept the resurrection of Christ, then there's nothing particularly difficult about reading Jonah literally. In other words, if there is a God who has acted supernaturally and he has created all that we know, then there is nothing illogical then. It couldn't be harder for God to resurrect someone from the dead or to just reorder life, right? Or what about this? Do you believe in God? Could you believe that there is a creator? And maybe you say, sure, I can believe in God who created life. I could believe that. If there is a God who supernaturally created life out of nothing, then why would it be any less possible for God to then resurrect or reorder life? Right? You can't have one without the other because both are based upon supernatural intervention. Actually, if, if there is a God who supernaturally created life, then the supernatural can't be impossible. You can no longer rule that out. Actually, it's very possible, extremely possible. Let me just end with this. You know, the book of Jonah, missions, church planting, the story of the whole Bible is about someone who loved their enemies. But that someone's name isn't Jonah. And at this point, you, you must know that that someone's name is not someone in this room either. This is impossible for mere men and women. But it is only possible with God. In other words, the mission of the church, which is to constantly push ourselves to the edge of loving our enemies, was originally the mission of God who pushed himself to the absolute outer edge of loving his enemies. Because, friends, that is what you and I are. Think about that. Here we are, worshiping God, right? Uh, and, and, and we're coming before the throne room of God, and, and it's not like, you know, sanctification is slow, and it's not like we're perfect. It's none of that. I mean, look at King David's life. You see how that ended up. All of that is, is God's grace for enemies to worship him. People who, who, who worship him with our mouths, but disregard him and everything else. That's the whole story of the Bible. And because of the greater Jonah, who didn't run away from our sin, right? the greater Jonah, he didn't run away from our messiness. The greater Jonah, who did not reach for retribution, but with grace, you and I, friends, we experience this supernatural, transformative grace and forgiveness. You have forgive. I mean, think about it. You're gonna, we're all going to die one day, and we're going we're gonna to see God. And we, we have, I, I say there's so much trembling and fear, but we have the right to look uh, at God face to face, square dead in the eye, and say, because of Jesus, you can let me in. You have that right. I can never ask anyone to do this, to bestow this kind of forgiveness to their enemies, especially on someone who has truly wronged them. I think even if I did, I don't think it would have accomplished anything. It's just another law, another task, another burden. I can only share this good news with you of the Father who sent his only Son to freely give to you and me his grace and his empathy and his mercy 
over and over and over again until we reach eternity. Because Jesus is the one who went into the belly of sin. He bore all your guilt, all your shame, all our regrets, all our failures, all our mistakes, past, present, and future. Friends, Jesus has paid the retributive price so that you and I can receive receive restorative peace, emotional, spiritual, cosmic peace. That is the heart of God. That is the mission of God. Let's pray. Gracious God, we come before you and the gospel is breathtaking. The gospel is shocking. The gospel is countercultural. The gospel is supernatural. And, and it's so easy for me, even as it's my calling to be a minister of this gospel to take it for granted, to treat it like something, something else, like, 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 like lunch on Sunday. But no, this is where the keys of the kingdom lie. The kingdom is open and closed by the gospel of Christ. And I pray for every single person in this room. I pray Uh, for the leadership. I pray for the culture. I pray for the mission of this church. That, Father, they would just, that you would draw them near and near, just just slowly, slowly, more and more, a little bit, to that, to the purity of that mission. To just any old regular enemy, that it would start in their heart. That you would soften us, soften us, with your mercy and love. And we are so thankful that that is your mission and you are faithful to that mission and you're never going to give up on us. We are so thankful. And we ask that you would slowly transform our hearts in the power of the one who truly reigns, in the power of the one who truly has power. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.